I want to introduce this, this young woman over here, though. This is Jackie Copeland. Say hi, Jackie. No, you, you guys know Jackie, but there's a few things about Jackie that you don't know, and that's what we're going to talk about. Um, can, can you just kind of introduce some of why you think you're up here today? <laughs> um, when I was born, I had profound hearing loss. Um, I have a cochlear implant that helps me to hear, and it is something that I have struggled with pretty much the last 24 years of my life. How old are you? 25. Okay, okay. <laughs> So the Lord's been doing a lot of work in Jackie, especially in the last couple of months with her cochlear implant. Would, would you be okay to show them what we're talking about? It's kind of small to show up here, but... Mm -hmm. I'm proud of you. As he's been saying the last couple months. Yeah, <laughs> I am. So you probably have never seen Jackie with her hair up. You may have never noticed that. Um, thank you, Cheryl. Yes. I spent a lot in my life trying to hide a part of myself to feel normal. I was bullied in elementary school and middle school and I'm from a big family who was athletes who were perfect. And so me and Smith had a lot of conversations about why did I feel like I needed to hide something that was a part of who I am. And I told him two years ago, I begged for God not to make this a part of my story, that this wasn't something that I would have to share. I didn't believe that it was something that God could show love through. Um, but the Lord has shown me that showing a part of who I am shares the vulnerability of who God is through me. I am somebody who's so imperfect, loved by a perfect king. Um, I had to ask a lot of questions about why was I ashamed of my implant? Why was I willing to hide it? Why was I willing to not let others love me for who I am? And why couldn't I love others? And why couldn't I share that part of who I am? And a lot of it came down to that story in The Chosen about being healed. Was I ashamed because I wanted to be healed? Was I ashamed because I wanted God to take that out of my story? And I realized that I am completely happy to not be healed. I have something to look forward to when I go home to the king. I can't wait to hear what everybody's voices sound like officially. Um, but I realize that I'm completely okay with being deaf, and I love being deaf. And the Lord has taken the last few months to really show me how to love those moments of me being deaf and how I can be with him in prayer so much more intimately when I am who I am, when I'm not trying to hide behind a device, when I'm not trying to work in every other part of my life. I begged God to let me work on everything else and be there for everybody else in every other way. But the Lord said, no, you have to love them with who you are. And so here we are working on my identity with a cochlear implant. Yes. Praise God. Can you, can you talk about how that misshaped your identity? 
and then how the Lord has, I mean, you, you just spoke to it in many ways, but can you be more specific on how it misshaped your identity, made you want to cover up yourself, and now how the Lord has given you a new identity? Um, I think with how it misshaped my identity was I built a lot of walls. Um, I didn't know what love was. I didn't know how to love the people around me. I didn't know how to let people in. And I didn't really know how to be there for other people. I tried to be there for them without being who I was. And I think a lot of it hid, I guess, my identity of just being present, being in the moment instead of wishing for circumstances to be different or trying to fix who I was, trying to not accept the fact that I'm unique, I'm different, and now I'm embracing the fact that I'm unique, I'm different, I'm not made to be perfect. No one in this world can be perfect. Preach it. All right, so how, how is he shaping your identity now? Uh, it's shaping it now as I can truly come to the Lord and who I am and being vulnerable. Um, I, my heart breaks for those who go through difficult times, more, knowing I've felt all those pains, all the loneliness, the hurt, the anger, and I didn't know what those were, emotions were, so we worked on it the last year of really identifying what those emotions were and being able to let the Lord flood that with love and the fact that I am his daughter. And, and uh, Yes, yes, you're doing great. He's promised on me last minute today, so we're winging it. It's a thing. Me and Laura, we're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, so you talked about you, you build up walls, but part of what you've named with me is that you also try to over-prepare and over-perform. Can you speak to that? Uh, I felt like I had to make up for my imperfection. If I didn't want people to know that I struggled and I lacked in an area of my life, I had to find a way to overcome that, be something that I wasn't to pretend to be something else like I would step into the shoes of like who my sister was she was an amazing college athlete she knew the words to say in front of people and I would try to pretend like I was her for a minute and step into shoes that wasn't really meant for me I was stepping into other people's identities instead of being myself Jackie I'm really proud of you thank you love you Maggie, would you mind come up and, and bless her in prayer? Speaking to surprising people. <laughs> Father God, I thank you so much for Jackie and her vulnerability and her willingness to speak these things today out loud because I know that was really difficult for her and she wasn't really excited to do it. Um, so thank you for giving her the courage that she needed and the words that she needed to say because what she shared was beautiful. And Lord, I pray that you bless those who heard what she said so that they can step out and start finding their identity in you instead of in themselves. Lord, um, I ask that you bless Jackie and you bless her story and that you continue to make her bold in her faith 
and that you continue to draw her near to you and that she will continue to share her story with others so that others can be encouraged and can learn to love you just like she loves you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, can you all give her a hand? She did something really brave. A lot of courage. Great job, Jackie. A lot of vulnerability. Both of those things have been hard, and here you are today. Surprise. Um, all right, we're in a series on the Lord's Prayer, um, and this is part three. We're, we're basically just working through this, and the reason is because you can't graduate from the Lord's Prayer. Like, if you want to figure out prayer, you can't do better than Jesus. So let's just go to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And here's what Jesus says. He says, um, well, he says, our Father in heaven, that was part two. Actually, part one, do you all remember simple prayer? Can I just tell a quick story of simple prayer? Um, the, the Davidsons, Taylor and Rebecca, were sharing about their daughter, Liza. They stepped downstairs, so I feel totally comfortable talking about them. And uh, Jesslyn and the kids team has been working on what we're doing upstairs, they're doing downstairs as a, at a kid's level. And so it's pray what you've got, pray what's in you. And so Liza was just saying, like, Mom, when I was going to bed, I was just telling God everything. I was just telling him what's in me, just like we were learning in class. And she said, it was amazing. I was just telling him all about my day. I was like, yes, that's it. But they're also memorizing Lord's Prayer. So it's pray what's in us and pray what he gives us. Last week, we looked at our Father in Heaven, and we saw that we have, we have a Father who is the King who dearly loves us. He has this amazing, powerful nature, and He has this amazing, powerful nurture. And both of those are at work in that phrase, our Father in Heaven. And then this week, we'll, we'll turn to really the God orientation of prayer. But, but let me set the stage, and this is, this is a lot of what Jackie was just kind of reflecting on. You see, a, a lot of us, we're involved in something that some writers call project self. Like, we just want to get better at doing life. We, I want to work on me, and so it's all about me. Um, there's a, a lot of secular people, non, non-religious people. Um, they're not thinking that guilt is a problem that they have. If anything, God doesn't need to forgive them. They need to forgive God. That's, that's a lot of people in our culture today. So instead of guilt, there's a lot of shame that they're carrying. So it's not that I have done something bad. It's that I am someone bad. And so Project Self is the, it's the by my own effort, restoration of the self. At least the covering of myself and my shame. So Jackie, you were a beautiful, vulnerable, courageous example of what this can look like. But it's not just a Jackie thing, is it? Has anybody here ever struggled with something where you felt like you didn't measure up or you weren't quite enough, where you were on the outside looking in, and then it felt like I have to project an appearance to the outside world to mask over this thing? That's what I mean by project self. But now you're at a church on a Sunday morning, you're not doing the uh, just total project self. But very often, project self, that cultural project of just looking at me, it can actually bleed into, it can bleed into the Christian life too. It can actually even bleed into your prayer life. Here's, here's kind of the prayer of self, where everything is oriented around me. And so I, I want my name to be great. I, so I, 
I want to get ahead in my work, in my career, in my education. Most of my prayers are about me and my name. Or they're about my family and my kingdom and my people. Or over here, they're about my struggles. And it's about relieving the hard things that I'm going through. Do these prayers sound familiar to anybody here? It's like, this is almost what we all pray. This is like the default setting of prayer. It's, it's actually not a prayer of what God might be doing in the world. It's a prayer of project self. There's a lot of good that God wants for you. But the good that God wants for you is found in him. And so the self-centeredness of some of our lives and even some of our prayers, I think, needs a reorientation to remember that God, our Father in heaven, that's actually where we find your true self. I was reading one of my favorite authors. He's a guy named Alan Noble. He's kind of a a weird college professor. He's an English professor. He reads a lot of books, but he writes some of my favorite ones also. He gave a commencement address at his college, and he said this, the world is screaming at you to live your best life to be the best version of yourself, to make yourself into something grand and important and meaningful and Instagram worthy. And I just want you to know that you are already grand and important and meaningful because God created you. He sustains you each moment of your life and he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins and that gives you the freedom to delight in this life. You see how it's just a reorientation of finding that God is actually the anchor of our identities. A hundred years from now, nobody's going to care about your kingdom. Five years from now, nobody's going to care about your Instagram feed. And you're like, nobody even cares now. It's like, yes, that's, that's kind of the idea. There's a lot of the things that we're so focused on projecting or masking they actually, they don't, they don't need more mask and more projecting systems. What they need is a vulnerability before your Father who loves you. So the, the structure of the prayer reveals this. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the structure of the prayer is important. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, loves structure. Everything is structured in in the whole thing. This happens to be the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount, this Lord's Prayer. It is the summary of the sermon. The sermon is the summary of the whole gospel. And look how it's structured. It's structured according to the two great commands. Love God and love your neighbor. So it's your name, your kingdom, your will, and then give us, forgive us, deliver us. These also correspond to the Ten Commandments. Remember, have no gods before me, no graven. It's about a Godward attitude that then situates us to be able to ask for these other things and finding who we actually are. You, um, Luther, he would say on the, on the Ten Commandments, he says you can't break commandments five through ten without first breaking that first commandment of no gods before me. He's, so what we have to do in prayer somehow is to step into that Godwardness so that it can overcome some of our self-centeredness. And instead of a prayer of project self, this is the glimpse of the prayer that we have in the Lord's Prayer. You see, there's three things that he asks for. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And all of those 
He's asking for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. These aren't three distinct things. These are three things that are overlapping and intersecting in some way. This is about God's will, kingdom, and name being on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to walk through each of these phrases because they're just, I mean, for me, like, maybe nerding out up here, but this is really interesting stuff, but I think it can actually also help us step into a prayer life in a deeper way that gets us out of project self and gets us into the kingdom of God in Memphis as it is in heaven. Okay, so let's just go phrase by phrase as we walk through this, starting with that phrase, hallowed be your name. Can we just start here by saying, that's a really weird way to talk. Okay, you've never used the word hallowed And what even does it mean to say that someone's name is hallowed? The only time we ever encounter language like this, it seems like, is in a church. So let's go back. Hallow, it actually is this word that means to sanctify. And you're like, that doesn't help. That's still just another church word. Okay, so how about this word? Honor. Honor. So you set it apart. You make it special. You honor it. And you honor the name. You honor the name. Now, this is a weird thing. It's like, why are we asking for us to be able to hallow his name? It's important that this is actually an imperative request of God. It's actually saying, God, I want you to hallow your name. Not that I need it or want it. I want you to do this. Hallow your name. Can I tell you the story of the name in scripture in hopefully five minutes or less? All right, you ready for this? The name of God is a very famous scene with Moses at the Exodus. Remember, he he goes in front of the the burning bush. And he has all kinds of excuses for why he shouldn't be able to do the thing that God is calling him to do. Do you remember one of his excuses? When they ask what your name is, what am I going to say? They're asking, what is his name? And what does the Lord answer? He says, I will be who I will be. That is my name forever. Uh, Tell him, I am has sent you. The the name, I will be who I will be, gets shortened into this, uh, it's called the tetragrammaton. Tetra, four, grammaton, letters. It's the four letters, Y-H-W-H. It's unpronounced in Judaism. It's unpronounced for thousands of years. Um, It's... (laughs) Hunter, you have a tattoo on your arm, right? It's the name that he gives. And he says, this is going to be my name forever. It's interesting. It's actually a good question that Moses asked. Because one of the first questions that Pharaoh asked is, who is this? (laughs) What's his name? Who is this God that I should obey him? But in in the story of the Exodus, there becomes this, uh, scholars call it a recognition formula. It occurs seven times, seven is not, speaking of structure being important, seven is not an accidental uh, number, it's the number of completeness, it's the number of wholeness, and seven times throughout the plague sequences of the story of God's name, he says this, then you will know that I am the Lord, then you will know that I, this is his name, and so he's saying that I am coming to show that I am a father and this is my son. I'm showing up in a way that you, 
Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know my name. Pharaoh, you will know my name. The nations, you will know my name. The whole world is going to know my name. Seven times, over and over and over, it's repeated. What's this about? God is showing that I am a father and this is my son. I love him and you will let him go. He's hallowing his name. He's setting it apart. He's making it famous. He's glorifying his name. And then, of course, you remember the story of uh, the Ten Commandments, where the Ten Commandments are given and it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's saying that you shouldn't not only not speak it, but you shouldn't take it on. You shouldn't bear it in vain. So Israel, though, they... (laughs) They profane the name. They, um, it's, then they will know that I am Yahweh. And it seems like everybody's forgetting that he's Yahweh because of how Israel behaves. One of the great prophets, Ezekiel, picks this up. Ezekiel picks it up. Let me just read some from Ezekiel 36. He says, wherever they went, Israel is scattered. Whenever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. Now, profane is another church word, right? It's another religious word. What does it mean? What you need to know here is that it means the exact opposite of hallow. So if God wants to hallow, to make holy, to set apart and honor his name, what Israel is doing is they're desecrating his name. They're cheapening his name. They're dishonoring his name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. He says, you're getting me in a bad reputation. My name is at stake. He goes on, therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord, Lord in all caps is that tetragrammaton. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show you the holiness of my great name. God, this, this is what he's saying. I am hallowing my name. How? It's been profaned among the nations. The name that you profaned among them, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. You see that, that same pattern from Exodus is now being used a thousand years later by Ezekiel. Then they will know, declares the sovereign Lord. Here's how. When I am proved holy, through you before their eyes. So God's reputation, his name, gets wrapped up with his people. And he says, I'm going to make my name holy. How? I'm going to do it through you before others. Now, just to make this a little plainer, this is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. The literally the paragraph before this prayer, he says, I want you to have your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's what he's saying is going to happen. This is how his name is hallowed. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. But look at how he hallows it. It's not that his name is unholy. It's that it's unholy when it's attached to us. So Tertullian, he's a a North African church father. He says, when we say hallowed be thy name, we pray this, that it might be hallowed in us who are in him as well as in all others. 
He's saying, when we pray for God's name to be hallowed, he's saying, I want you, God, to do something in me, and I want you to do it in the lives of my neighbors. Hallow your name, hallowed in us. Justo Gonzalez, a a Cuban-born theologian, he says, when we ask God's name to be hallowed, we are in no way suggesting that God could be holier, but that we are simply asking God to allow us to partake of divine holiness. Tim Mackey, Bible Project. We go from North Africa to Cuba to like white dude in Portland. He says, the prayer shapes people into the answer to the prayer. Hallowed be your name. How? May your name be hallowed in my life. It's an invitation for God to be at work. Ezekiel, the next paragraph, what he says is, this is how God makes his name hallowed. He says, I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you can follow my decrees and keep my laws. The hallowing of God's name looks like the spirit of God bearing fruit in your life. Hallowed be your name. The second phrase of of this triad, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, kingdom is language that's frequently on the lips of Jesus. The first time he begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 3, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's around the corner. It's breaking in. Sometimes he can do a miracle and he say, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's already happened. He can say, the kingdom of God, it's going to come in its in some sense in its fullness before this generation passes away. You will see the kingdom come. He's constantly talking about the kingdom coming. This kingdom message is the, the substance of this prayer. So what does this mean? The, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is just a way of talking about when the son of David is actually ruling and when God comes back to his people. The kingdom of God is the hope of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Malachi. And they're, they're all saying God is coming back. The son of David is going to be king. That's the kingdom of God. It looks like where the son of David, the true son of David rules and where God's law is recognized. If you think of kingdoms, it makes sense. And of course, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand in a kingdom where they already have Caesar is king and they already have Herod is king. They already have kings. They know about kings. But he's saying under their nose, in a subversive way, the kingdom of heaven is breaking in through Jesus. But this isn't just the message that he's preaching. This becomes the prayer that he calls on his people to continue praying. Your kingdom come. So why do we need God's kingdom to come if Jesus has already brought it? If the kingdom is already here and it's already come, and he says it'll be here before the generation passes away, why is there still tears? Why is there still evil? Why is there still injustice? Why are there still kings for that matter? There's this line that shows up in the temptation narrative of Matthew 4, where the evil one comes to Jesus and he says, look at all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says, I can give them to you. He says, because every inbreaking of the kingdom is in contested territory. It's a battleground. It's not only the kingdom of God coming, it's also the kingdom of the evil one. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the ruler of this world. He is called the 
the ruler of this age. And he's contesting every inch of the cosmos. And he's doing it through our government and political systems. He's doing it through our monetary and financial systems. He is at work contesting the claims of Jesus. Every square inch, some scholars say, is claimed and counterclaimed by spiritual forces battling for the right to be in charge. The kingdom is about who's in charge. It's about who's reigning. And so Jesus doesn't come and once and for all eliminate the need for this prayer. Instead, he says, I want you to go on living and praying in an act of war. Stanley Grins, he says that Christian prayer is ultimately a cry for the kingdom. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, you remember, he's, he's saying, I want you to take up the shield. I want you to take up the sword. I want you to put on the armor of God. But then this is how he finishes. Take up the helmet, take the sword, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. And be alert, always keeping, <laughs> uh, keep on praying for all the saints and pray also for me. He says prayer is the primary weapon of how the kingdom of God comes. And that may seem like a cop-out. Some of you are like, does prayer really do anything? Jesus is saying it does. This is how the kingdom comes. You see, this is the marching order. You want the kingdom to come, he says, go to the Father in prayer. How does the kingdom come? He says the kingdom comes through our transformation and then as we go on carrying out this kingdom into the world. Think of it like this, N.T. Wright says. Jesus is the medical genius who discovered penicillin, and we are doctors. Ourselves being cured by the medicine, now we can apply it to those in need. Jesus is the musical genius who wrote the, the greatest show of all time, and we are the musicians, captivated by his composition ourselves, who now perform it before a world full of cacophony. The kingdom did indeed come with Jesus, but it will fully come when the world is healed when the whole creation finally joins in the song. But it must be Jesus' medicine. It must be Jesus' music. And the only way to be sure of that is to pray his prayer. The third phrase in this triad is, your will be done. Your will be done. I used to think this clause was simply one of resignation, one scholar said. Thy will be done with a shrug of the shoulders as if God doesn't care. He says, that won't do for Jesus. No, this is the risky, crazy prayer of submission. It is the way we sign on. It is the way we take the medicine. It is the way we play the music. It's not the language of resignation, but the language of participation. It's not that there's nothing we can do. It's that God is at work and he wants you to be part of it. So let your will be done in me. It's the becoming of prayer. Whenever we see prayer, it's your will be done. And so prayer is not as much about bending God's will into ours as much as it is God bending our will into his. In prayer we become. Everything we know about God and his character and God's will and the nature of God's rule, we bring that to bear and he says, I want to turn you into that. 
not as I will, but as you will. One of the questions that we have about this, your will be done, is can we trust him? Is he actually trustworthy? If I go to him in these prayers, how do I know he's got my best interest in mind? And it's just, it's just so clear what I think the answer is. It's like, of course you can. But it's not the prayer of the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6. It's the prayer of the Lord in Matthew 26. You remember he pulls a few disciples over and he says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And then Jesus pulls away and he prays this prayer. He says, not as I will, but as you will. A second time, they're asleep. He comes back over and he says, God, your will be done. You see, your will be done in the garden has already been prayed and recited hundreds, dozens, thousands of times by Jesus elsewhere. And the prayer reaches its fulfillment in the garden. Your will be done, not as I will, but as you will. And this picture of Jesus in prayer, the one who gave us the language of your will be done, is the answer to that question of can we trust him? Of course you can. Jesus prayed this prayer under circumstances far more crushing than any of us have ever faced. And there he submitted to his Father's will rather than following his own desires. And that is our salvation. That's why we can trust him. Jesus isn't asking us to pray or to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. And under conditions far more difficult than the ones we face. Jesus is showing, I am trustworthy. Pray in my name and pray your will be done. But then there's this phrase that holds all of it together, and it's, it's on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven is a phrase that I deeply misunderstood for most of my life. Um, but if you study the Gospel of Matthew, you realize that heaven and earth is actually a really important theme. One scholar who is an expert in the Gospel of Matthew, he calls it an elaborate literary and theological theme in Matthew. He says the whole prayer... And the whole Sermon on the Mount is built on this theme of heaven and earth as a pair, not as different things, but as a pair, not in contradiction. Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth is also the language of rule. So let me, let me define heaven for us. Heaven is God's space. Earth is our space. Heaven is where God is in charge, where his will is there, where the future promises of God have already happened, where all the fullness of God is, that's heaven, and then earth is where... The evil one is in charge, where we are in charge. So how do we make sense of heaven and earth? Uh, one, one of the turning points in my understanding of how the scripture uses this phrase came from N.T. Wright in his book many years ago called Simply Christian. In Simply Christian, he says there are three options for how to understand this that the world religions give us. He says if you look back in the ancient world, at the Stoics and the Epicureans and if you look at the modern world, he says these are the three options for how to make sense of heaven and earth. He says option one is that heaven and earth are together. They're basically the same thing. This would be the idea of the pantheist today. A lot of Eastern spirituality is built on this idea that heaven and earth are the same thing. You can't escape the divine. The divine is everything. Everything is divine. You are divine. I am divine. Whatever divines there are, they're also divine, and the divine and the heaven and earth have just been collapsed together. Does that make sense? 
The problem with heaven and earth and Eastern spirituality and, and pantheism is that there's actually no recognition that anything can actually be evil and wicked. And you and I both know in our guts that justice is real and that there is such a thing as good and evil. And so instead of saying that the worst thing you can imagine is divine, <laughs> we have to be able to say this is wrong. And there's no room when you collapse heaven and earth together. All is heaven, all is earth. And it just blends. He says option two is that they're totally separate. Now this would be the ancient philosophy of the Epicureans. That the gods, if they're gods, they're far off and they don't really care about you. So just try to have a good time. Don't overdo it. This is very much the philosophy that was dominant when our country was formed in the 18th century. The Epicurean was just kind of brought in, except it's under a new name. It's called deism, where God is far off. This is like the religion of Thomas Jefferson. It's the religion of our founding fathers here. God is far off, and he's not really involved in what we're doing, so let's figure out how to do this on our own. And this is the implicit understanding of most of us when it comes to heaven and earth, that they are totally separated. So much so that we all seem to think that earth is going to hell in a handbasket, and the goal of salvation is to get us out of earth and into heaven. That was, for as long as I grew up, that was how I understood heaven and earth. As if I needed to get out of earth rather than um, option three. So let's, let's talk about option three. Option three is where heaven and earth... It's not that they're collapsed into one another, and it's not that they're totally separate, as if a wall separates them. It's that they are overlapping and interlocked, to use the language of, of right and simply Christian. They are overlapping and interlocked in special places and special ways. This is the only one that makes sense of the biblical story. This is how it looks in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember where God, God's space and our space overlapped here? This is how it looked in, in the fire that was before Moses, in the cloud that led Israel. This is how it looked in the Ark of the Covenant, where God's space and our space overlap. This is how it looked in the tabernacle. This is how it looked in the temple. And most of all, this is how it looked in Jesus. You cannot worship an incarnate God and not hold to option three, because heaven has come into earth. And he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The realm of God is here, though hidden and invisible, yes, but so is the realm of the evil one. So is the realm of, of earth and the realm of our own kingdoms. He's saying all of these are contested. So on earth as it is in heaven is actually this way of saying, God, would you make your invisible reign more clear and more apparent? This is the vision of the prophets, the vision of the New Testament witness. And it is the foundational center to prayer and the Lord's prayer. Whenever scholars look at the hope of Christianity... It is not that you will be taken out of, out of earth and sent over to heaven. That's not the ultimate hope. In the book of Revelation, it isn't about humans being snatched up from earth to heaven. The holy city in Revelation 21 comes down from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth rather. God's space and ours are finally married, integrated at last. Scott McKnight, he says the same thing. It's not about our going up to the sky or into a disembodied state in heaven, but of heaven coming down to earth. The final state, according to Revelation 20 through 22, is on earth. That's why the Lord's Prayer says, on earth as it is in heaven. This is, this is the hope, and this is the mission. So he says, I want your name to be hallowed. How is it hallowed? It's hallowed in us. I want your kingdom to come. 
less of my kingdom, more of your kingdom. Make me recognize your, your law and participate. It's your will be done, not my will. May my will be conformed into yours. For what purpose? So that heaven can break into this world. So how does heaven come on earth? How does heaven come? And Jesus says, heaven comes through prayer. And can I just kind of full disclosure, we'll talk more about this another day. Can I just say, I don't know how this is fully true. I just know that it is. I don't know how prayer does all the things that the Lord's Prayer asks. But I trust that it does. And so we're going to have a lot of questions. We're going to have questions about unanswered prayer. We're going to have questions about God's will. We're going to have questions about the people without daily bread and the ones who need delivered from the evil one. We're going to have a lot of questions. But we have a practice in the place of the questions, and the practice is prayer. The Lord's Prayer shows us, do this, say this. When you pray, recite this. The answer is that prayer comes by God. That's why it begins with this trifle request of God. God, make your name hallowed, make your kingdom come, make your will be done. It comes by God, but it comes by God working through us. Heaven comes through our becoming. It comes by God sending. But all of this happens in prayer. The activation of God creates new realities that call God in through prayer. And prayer has a way of activating ourselves to where we can be conformed into the image of Jesus. Heaven comes through prayer, and we become through prayer. We are the on earth as it is in heaven people. Because the prayer shapes people into the answer to the prayer. In the prayer, there's no better summary of the mission of Jesus. And if you pray this prayer every day, you will be shaped into a person who is on mission with Jesus. The center of the center of the center of the sermon is this prayer. It represents the whole life of Jesus. Saying, this is how it happens. You become a, you become a part of the you become a child of God through this prayer. It's the entire gospel. It's the whole heavenly doctrine, the church father said. It comes through prayer. Jermaine, I'm going to ask for your help with a contemplative practice. This is not a surprise. He knew this was coming. Um, can you grab a bulletin? And on the back, there's a few steps, and he's going to go through these. Will you take this bulletin home with you? And there's some text at the bottom. What we're going to try to do is what Reed did for us last week. You remember where Reed said there's really two ways of being on a canoe? There's just floating with God, where it's just, you're just resting, you put the paddle down, and you just behold. That's what we're going to try to do here. We're going to try to practice contemplation of what the kingdom of God will look like when it comes. And this is a practice you can do anytime. You don't have to have me or Jermaine up here. It's just a practice to make room for God bringing to mind through Scripture what it looks like to have the kingdom come. Next month, we'll get into more contending prayer, more of the paddling. As you, it's where you're going upstream, where you're really working. But right now, we're just going to kind of settle um, and, and put this into practice, where we are reoriented to the ways of the will of God, the kingdom of God, and to the name of God. Um, I think the Lord's Prayer frees us from the vanity, the futility, and the insecurity of project self. And what it gives us is an identity that's durable and lasting. 
It's found when you discover who you are in him. And when you get wrapped up into what he's doing in the world. You see it, your kingdom is going to be forgotten in 100 years. Your Instagram feed is going to be forgotten in a year. But the kingdom of God is an eternal reality. And your family and that reality is going to go on and on forever and ever. All right, Jermaine, come on up and, and lead us through this. All right, so I am going to lead us through um, a prayer of um, Matthew 5. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do uh, give us some prompts. I'm going to invite you in a few seconds just to kind of close your eyes. I'm going to give you some prompts on how to position your body. If you, if you want to do that, you're invited to. Feel free to do whatever works best for you, though. What I'm giving is more so just general instruction and recommendation, but um, if you're pretty comfortable in your contemplative prayer practice, feel free to do engage in it that way as well. Okay, so um, if you'd like to, I wanna invite you just to kind of close your eyes and just kind of settle your brains a little bit, right? I don't want you to notice um, the position of your feet on the ground in relation to the ground. Um, if they're in an uncomfortable position, move your feet um, to a comfortable position. Notice the weight on the joints in your ankles, your legs, and your hips. If anything needs to be adjusted there, do that. Put your arms in a comfortable place. Relax your shoulders away from your ears. Notice the weight on your neck, the, the position of your head. Notice your breathing. We're gonna do a few rounds of uh, five count breaths, okay? Inhale, two, three, four, five. Hold, exhale, two, three, four, five. Inhale, two, three, four, five. Hold, exhale, two, three, four, Imagine this scene in scripture. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came with him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Where are you in the scene? Where is Jesus? Are you outside or inside? Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all things, all, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great 
is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Ask God what you need to hear today. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this moment of peace, this moment of reflection, this time of sitting at your feet and being together as a family. As we reflect on your word, help, us, help it to dwell in us as we dwell in you. We pray that as we reflect on your word, help us to know that we are blessed, no matter what our circumstances are. Help us to know that you love us. And help us to know you seek to dwell in intimate connection with us continually. This is our prayer in your son's name. Amen.